shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't need maybe. Welcome to Nocturnal Journal tonight. Uh, we got a great, great show. On the 10 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about Aaron Cohen's new book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And we're bringing in uh, our friend, a uh, legendary Chicago soul arranger and saxophonist, Willie Henderson, for that. And in the 9.30 hour, we're going to have uh, Jerry Nicosia out from the Bay Area to talk about his latest book, Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. And on the phone now from Connecticut, we have Monique Keller. How you doing, Monique? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for staying up with us on a, on a Saturday night. No problem. Thank and you for having me. It's a it's a it's it's a sad story, and then it turns out to be a, quite an engaging story. Uh, you lost your father, Joe, on September eighth, right at age eighty two. Joe Heller. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you guys. I think I'm going to read a little. I was looking here. I think I, I want to read a little bit of the obit. You guys put together the obit, and it ended up being what the New York Times called like the best obituary ever. So, <laughs> and I it's, have it's, to agree with them. <laughs> pardon me. I do have to agree with yeah. them. So here's just a couple things, and then uh, you know we can link listeners up to it and stuff. But uh, there's stuff about uh, uh, when the doctors confronted his daughters with the news last week that your father is a very sick man. In unison, they replied, "You have no idea." And uh, you talk about your mom, Irene, uh, the, the love of his life, who was uh, hoodwinked into thinking he was a charming individual with decorum. Boy, was she ever wrong. Joe embarrassed her daily with his mouth and choice of clothing. It goes on and on. I mean, and you and I talked when I, when I talked to you earlier this week about why this resonates with people. And we get into that a little bit, but um, I think it's just so truthful and honest. But talk about Joe. Talk about your dad and tell the listeners who he was. And then we'll get into the specifics of the obit. I mean, my dad was was a great guy. He was a great member in the community. He was a great father. He was a great citizen, and he lived for his family, and he lived to serve the community. Uh, he grew up in a small town in Connecticut and, you know, stayed friends with the folks that he grew up with. So some of his best friends through life he knew from elementary school. And he didn't like to leave the confines of of Essex, which is a very small town. And so to have his his obituary and his presence felt across the world has really touched us. Um, where did he work? He was a U.S. Navy vet. Uh, yeah, give us a little bit of his resume. So when he got out of the, the Navy, uh, he went to work for Cheeseboro Ponds, which is a... A cosmetics company, which has since been bought out many times over. And I guess he kind of hoodwinked them into thinking that he was a chemist. <laughs> and so he was working alongside these college-educated chemists, and he was developing uh, cosmetic products and makeup products and really holding his own. And he would bring home bags of creams and potions and makeup and lipstick and, you know, things that they were developing in the labs. 
And, of course, growing up, my sisters and I absolutely loved having all of these cosmetics and goodies at our disposal. And more often than not, he would, you know, sit on the floor and we would open up the beauty salon and we would make him up and do his hair. And, you know, he was pretty much game for everything. Wow, wow. Um, How did he meet your mom? He met my mom. So when he was a chemist at Cheese Row Ponds, my mom was a secretary for one of the executives there. And my mother was impressed by the fact that he was a chemist and, you know, perhaps didn't have the backstory and and didn't know that he was kind of faking it until he made it. And uh, she saw him, fell in love with him, and the rest is history. And how long were they married? They um, would have been married for 58 years. So my dad passed away the day before their 58th wedding anniversary. Wow. Wow. And he joined my mom. My mom passed away in 2015. And uh, he was uh, a volunteer fireman, a public work snowplower. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I bring that up is how did he, and now I want to get into his persona, but how did he uh, interact with the people in the community? Was he, paint a picture, was he a jokester? Was he, was he, was he like, I mean, how did he uh, interact with people on his, on his routes throughout the, his life? Um, you know, it, he always was a jokester, I mean, from as long as I can remember. And one of the things I did mention in his eulogy is we had these neighbors who had just moved into the the hill where we grew up and their front yard was wetlands and any time there was any amount of rain um, my my father you know we were down in the the basement painting signs about you know look out for alligators you know swamp creatures whatever and in the middle of the night we would go and we would nail these signs up to this, you know, this poor new neighbor who just moved into town and they wake up and, you know, their front yard, which is a swamp, is, you know, (laughs) laden with signs about, you know, warnings of alligators and such. So um, that was his welcome for them into the neighborhood. You said, go ahead. um, You know, I mean, my my dad started off at, at Cheeseboro Ponds and when the organization left town, um, he decided to, you know, work for the local concrete plant. He was a town constable. He did pretty much anything to, you know, cobble together a living so that my mom could stay home with the three of us. Um, You say in here uh, about Joe was a frequent shopper at the Essex Dump and left his family mm-hmm. with a house full of crap, mm-hmm. 300 pounds yeah. of bird seed and dead house plants <laughs> that they that have no true. idea what to do with. So did he mm-hmm. collect a lot of stuff? I mean, obviously, right? My father was, was an avid collector. And, you know, growing up on the tail end of the Depression, he grew up where food was, was rationed. And these were some of the things that my grandfather used to tell us about and my father would tell us about. And so he was the, the eldest of five kids and having a house of seven mouths to feed, my grandfather did try to to stretch a dollar and never threw anything away. And, and that was very much what shaped and molded his life. And so if he was at the dump and he saw, I don't know, perhaps a perfectly good shovel, it, he would pick it up and he would bring it home. My mother, of course, had very, you know, opposing ideas about what the house should be used for. And, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, they would bicker about is my father's growing collections of of things. And more often than not, someone would reach out to him and they'd say, hey, Joe, do you have, you know, X, Y, and Z? He'd go down to the basement. He'd pull out 
one of eight of, you know, whatever he had collected and, and give it to this person. And so if something had any sort of utility or life left to it, uh, that necessarily, you know, wound up in our garage or our basement and, and we're wrestling with some of those things now. Boy, I told you, I lost my parents a few years ago. My dad was born in 1920, and it was the same. It was the same deal. And cleaning that mm-hmm. out is really, really daunting. You know, it's, it's a dubious task. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it really is. Um, okay, we got to take a break, and then I want to get into the nuts and bolts of, of how this all came together. So, can you hang on with us a little bit longer? Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Monique. We'll be back with more Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Now all the things that you have done has killed my soul, made my spirits run. Don't mind your hand. I'm gonna tear your ass off or down. Don't bite your hind little hat, and I'll be satisfied. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Monique Heller is on the line from Connecticut talking about her late father, Joe Heller, who wrote, you wrote The World's Greatest Obituary. And I mm-hmm. did that for your dad because you said he liked bluegrass music. <laughs> He did, and uh, we actually had it playing in the hospital, so I had my phone up on his pillow, and we probably listened to bluegrass music for about 36 hours, and that's all we could take. (laughs) Yeah, you're not a bluegrass fan. I can appreciate it for a finite amount of time, but I'd say going nonstop, um, it it was a bit much, but... (laughs) We weren't doing it for ourselves. Yeah, you're of course not. Um, yeah. Okay, so now who's, whose idea was this? And I was curious, um, yeah. were the wheels in motion? Did he know about it? So talk about how all this took shape. He did know about it. So, you know, my dad and I had a very close relationship, and I've been writing down stories and memories and thoughts for, you know, the past couple of years. He's had a couple of health issues come and go over the years and we'd say oh this might be it oh this might be it and it never was and so I just had a notebook where I I just started taking some some notes down about things that I wanted to recall and what I wanted people to know about him and during the the last week of his life I was alone in the hospital with him and I said you know dad I I know what you want for your funeral and I know what you want for your wake but something we haven't talked about is your obituary. And he said, yep. And I said, you know, are we going funny with this or are we going serious? And he looked at me and he said, you're kidding, right? And I said, we're going funny. And he said, I want, I want people to tell stories about me. I want people to remember me. He said, I don't want my resume, uh, you know, in my obituary. That's not who I was about. And so I started, I started writing. And, you know, Wednesday before he, he passed, I, I woke up probably at midnight, and I just had this rush of adrenaline, and I sat down at the computer, and I just started typing. And I brought all of my thoughts into the hospital on Thursday, and I started reading them to my aunts and my uncle and my sisters who were there, and one of my nephews was there. And we were, uh, like, side-splitting laughter. We had so much fun with this obituary. They started bringing up stories that, you know, I forgot, and the, the obituary got so long that, you know, we had enough material for the eulogy as well. So 
this obituary is actually shorter than the one that we had originally intended, um, but we had gotten an estimate from the the funeral home about what it was going to run us, and, and I knew it would upset my father, but I said, you know what, we're doing it anyway. Um, 271, last count, 271 pages of tributes at the funeral home. I mean, yeah. it gives me goosebumps. Why do, you th- <laughs> why do you think this resonates with people so much? You know, I think that in the news there is just so much negativity. There are, you know, Americans fighting with Americans, and there is this political divide in the country. And my father's obituary hit the week of, you know, the 9-11 anniversary. And so, you know, the country's on edge. And this is a story about a guy who, you know, kind of kept to himself, kept to his own town, and it resonated with people. It told the story of of a life. It told the story of someone who loved his family and a family who loved him very much. And it it really has crossed every cultural, um, you know, boundary. We've heard from Australia, New Zealand, Russia, Brazil, Canada, um, nearly every of the 50 states. We've heard from the Caribbean. And everyone just says, he sounds like the kind of guy I would have loved to know. Oh, that's got to make you feel good. It does. You know, we were talking this week. Um, and talk about how it's helped you get through this. You know, I know, I know it's tough. So uh, how has it helped you in, in trying to heal and, and getting through these times? It is tough. Um, you know, I'd say that, <clears throat> excuse me, the first week, the media distraction really did help because, you know, obviously you're dealing with this gaping hole in your life now. And really my dad was my part-time job and my sister's part-time job as well because you needed so much help towards these past couple of years. And so you go from having this part-time job to having nothing, and, you know, it was filled in with, you know, just this rush of media and all of these people who wanted to talk about my dad and find out more about him. And having my dad have more friends in passing than he did in staying really still just just leaves me speechless. What was he like? Uh, again, uh, so many great things in this, but when uh, yeah. when they began dating, he uh, Joe would greet yeah. their dates by first running their. Now, is this well, you wouldn't you wouldn't make anything up by first running their license yeah. plates and checking uh, for yeah. bald tires. If the vehicle passed inspection, they were invited into the house where shotguns, harpoons, and sheep nutters were yeah. clearly on display. Is that <laughs> so? What was it like when you bring a guy into the house? Well, more often than not, my father would know the family that, you know, our suitors were from. We're, again, from a very small town, and my father knew so many people from the police force and his work on the ambulance and the fire department. And these are typically people we've gone to school with since we were in either kindergarten or, you know, had started junior high school with as part of the Tri-Town. And so if he didn't know the family, he would put his feelers out to his friends and say, you know, what's this guy all about? And if one of us managed to, you know, drag someone home who he didn't already know about, he would go out. um, He would come out as the person would pull into our driveway. He would do a visual inspection of the car. He would take uh, a penny out and put Lincoln's head in the, the tire tread to see if the tread depth was enough and these, you know, tires were safe enough to travel on. <laughs> and 
you know, I think it was, you know, it was both out of safety and and intimidation that he did that. But, you know, more often than not, the, the gentleman would come in, and uh, we did have, you know, whale harpoons up on the the wall, which were part of a display, and, you know, that my father had carved a whale, so that was up there as well. Um, but typically he had a, a shotgun out that he was cleaning, and then one of his friends had given him this set of antique sheep nutters, which he would, you know, take out and, you know, kind of clomp around when <laughs> these people would come into the house. What are, and, um, even, what are sheep nutters? Oh, my. Um, I'm sure that the farmers will appreciate this, but these are tools that are used to um, emasculate male sheep yeah, on a farm. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> boy, boy, oh, boy. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> what was his... Uh, what was the funeral like? Again, I read that he wanted a, like a no dress code, and and so right. was the funeral. Is kind of um, I don't want to, I hate the word fun, but I mean was it was it in the same mood as the obit? Um, well, I mean his wake was fun. Yeah. Um, you know when when I tell you that there wasn't a dry eye there, it's because there was so much laughter and there was so much joy, and my father did not want to be you know, laid out at a funeral home and wanted to be in front of this fire truck that he remodeled with his buddies. And so we asked the fire department if we could lay him out in all of his glory in front of this truck. And they had never had, you know, an open casket at the fire department before, but they were game for it. And so we had, um, you know, the truck. We had my dad in front of uh, the truck. And as people were, you know, approaching the, the coffin, they were, I guess, pleasantly surprised when they looked in. And my father had requested to be buried in a, a T-shirt with the grumpy dwarf on it, which we allowed him to be buried in. And um, he would, he, his request was to be embalmed with his middle finger giving the, you know, the salute. And so he was embalmed with his middle finger sticking up. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and, um, you know, he also requested that we put in a remote um, fart machine. And so (laughs) when people would come up to pay their respects, you know, I unfortunately was the one assigned to the other end of the remote control and, you know, as we were greeting people, if I knew that they wouldn't have a heart attack, we were just letting them rip from the casket. And people were leaning in and they were saying, oh, my gosh, this is so Joe. And this is so Joe. And only one person jumped back and it was really funny. And everyone was laughing. We had, you know, my dad on one side, we had a ton of food and sandwiches and salads and whatnot on the other and it was a party it was a celebration it was everyone coming together and telling their joe stories and this is exactly what he wanted well thank you um we got to wrap this up but thanks so much for joining us i want to say before we let you go and thanks so much uh for sharing these stories they're great monique uh tell us about the facebook page where people can follow you guys um, so I created a Facebook page for for my dad, and it's, you know, just Joe Heller. And we have a repository of, you know, everything that's been going on around the world in his honor and then just, you know, some family pictures. And so, you know, we'd love to have, you know, everyone go up and see the site and like the site, and we're just going to keep, 
you know, going on with the the press and the media antics and some of the things that my father would have enjoyed seeing. Well, um, thanks again for sharing uh, the stories of your father with us here on uh, WGN. Let's stay in touch, Monique, okay? Thank you, Dave. Okay, thanks a lot. Monique Heller from uh, Connecticut on her great father, Joe Heller. She knows where she's going. observation machine caressing the most passing of scenes with photographic love passionate photographic love vulnerable as any window his memories pull shades up and down doors are knocked on telegrams arrive jack kerouac on the phone gerald nicosia nice to see you jerry Nice to be here, Dave. Uh, nice to talk to you again after quite a few years. You're probably the world's number one expert on Jack Kerouac. Would I say that's that? probably true? That's right. And you've got a new book. We're going to get to. I want to build up to the book, though. The, the new book is called Kerouac: The Last Quarter Century, and I know it's such a passion of yours. It's on Noodle Brain Press. But you and I have known each other for a long time, um, so I just want to go step by step. What was your entryway into, into Jack? I mean, was it Dharma Bums? I mean, just talk about how your first first connection with him. Well, you know, I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois in Chicago, which we used to call Circle Campus. I guess they don't call it that anymore. But uh, anyway, I was getting my degree in American and English literature, and nobody was teaching Kerouac in any courses at all. And I was a teaching assistant, and I was sharing an office with a kind of a hip kid from Harvard, and he kept taunting me that I hadn't read Kerouac. So I decided I'd better go out and read him. And in those days, this was 1972, there were only two of his books in print, On the Road and the Dharma Bums. And I decided I'd read the less famous one, the Dharma Bums. And that book blew me away. Uh, I wasn't prepared for that at all because, you know, I was reading in, in my classes, I was reading John Updike and Philip Roth and Saul Bell, and they were all writing about kind of the middle, upper, upper middle class, you know, very respectable people. And suddenly I'm reading Jack Kerouac, uh, and it's about the, the bums and the hobos and the tramps and the homeless and the down and out and the, uh, the prostitutes. And, 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 and he's writing with this great compassion about these people of, uh, that are on the wrong side of American uh, capitalism and and it reminded me of Jack London because when I was a kid my dad used to read to me my dad was a Sicilian uh, immigrant uh, grew up on the streets of Chicago used to read to me from Jack London uh, when I was a kid the iron heel about the oppression of the poor by the rich and as I'm reading Kerouac I'm thinking my god this is this is like Jack London who also wrote about the hobos and so on and but it was also the compassion he he was really cared about these people he wanted them to have better lives and I I just thought this is extraordinary and I was upset that no one would teach him in, in any of the classes there. Why do you but it think... wasn't just that school. Anyway, they weren't teaching him anywhere in the United States at that time. Why do you think that was? Well, the Beats, you know, they were uh, they were attacked very heavily in the in the press. Um, they were called black spots on America. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover said the Beats were one of the three. The, the former head of the FBI. I better identify him for younger readers. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover said the Beats were one of the three greatest threats to America. Um, the uh, the press that these people got was was enormously bad, as if they were like you know leading a, an insurrection of juvenile delinquents or something. Uh, and it, it, for most of Kerouac's books went out of print very very quickly because of that. And, and academia, again, sort of accepted that, that while well, the Beats weren't even serious writers, they were kind of these who 
hooligans, these, these uh, you know, uh, crazy drug addict street people. And uh, they were not taken seriously as writers at all at that point. This is the uh, October 21st, is that right, the 50th anniversary of his passing? I know. The 50th anniversary is coming up October 21st, and it's really amazing because here you are now where Kerouac is, is recognized, I think I can safely say, as one of the great uh, greatest American uh, novelists and writers of the 20th century. And yet, you know, uh, uh, 1972, when I was in graduate school, you couldn't get a professor to teach him. Yeah, right. And we're going to get into that with your book about how uh, how his image has, has evolved, for lack of a better word. So then you do Memory Babe. Tell the listeners what Memory Babe, 750 pages that came out in 1994. I mean, that's no, like 1983. No, that was the second one. Yeah, the first right, edition right. was yeah. Grove Press, 1983. Yeah. Hey, hey, talk about that. <clears throat> well, I. Uh... You know, I, I decided I wanted to do a book on Kerouac when I was out of school. Uh, I could have gone on to UCLA. I had a, a four-year fellowship. But at that time, again, I realized if I had done that, they weren't going to let me write a, a thesis where I was celebrating Kerouac because he was anathema. He was hated in, in academia. So I just I gave it back. And my professors at UIC, were they said, you must be crazy. You're giving away a four-year fellowship to, uh, to UCLA. I said, but no, I'm just going to go out on my own. I started working as a substitute teacher in the Chicago area supporting myself as a freelance writer, determined that someday I was going to write a book to show people uh, what a great writer Kerouac was. And uh, there was a guy named Carl Mackey in Chicago who was starting a magazine. It never got off the ground, but he gave me my first check to New York. And once I started interviewing people, I realized there were all these people out there nobody had ever talked to. And so I, I, the money dried up very quickly. The magazine went under, but I kept going. I hitchhiked. I rode buses. I slept on people's floors. And I carried this really good – I invested all my money that I had in a beautiful Sony tape recorder, the best I could buy. And I uh, taped 300 people all over the country uh, talking about Kerouac, most of whom had never been interviewed before. And what were some points of discovery for you as you went through that process? How long did that take? Well, it was two years doing the interviews, uh, two years doing the, the actual writing, and it was another two years fighting publishers. I went through three different publishers uh, that uh, they were half partway through. They would cancel out, and uh, it took another two years to get the book published. So it was a six-year process altogether. Um, what was the first question? I'm sorry. Oh, your points of discovery. What, what did you learn that you didn't know before? Well, um, certainly I learned about his bisexuality, which was something that he had kept very, very hidden. Um, and uh, and also that there was a dark side to him, I guess, because, you know, I came in with a very positive view of Kerouac, that the, here was Jack London, new Jack London and someone, a, a new champion for the poor. Uh, and, you know, I found out that uh, uh, there, were, there were certain traits of anti-Semitism. There was a lot of a uh, anger toward women, uh, misogyny. He didn't want to support his daughter, didn't want to recognize his daughter. Uh, I began to see that, you know, that there was a lot of pain and anguish, as there often is in great artists' life, you know. In fact, sometimes I think a lot of great art comes out of that pain and anguish, but there was definitely, a, you know, a, a, a large dark side that he was managing to somehow transform into this this book. You know, he wrote a book. He wrote a book on the road that, you know, I keep I run into people. I swear to God, almost every week I run into people when they find out who I am. They say, "On the road changed my life." <laughs> I ran into a, an old musician here in Mill Valley, California, the other day. He said, "On the road changed my life," and that's just over and over. That book liberated people. It somehow taught people to celebrate life, to to uh, enjoy life, even if they had nothing, just to enjoy the beauty of being alive. It had all those great positive impacts, and yet the man who wrote it was himself, you know, in, in a great deal of anguish. And in 
in fact, you know, as you know, drank himself to death at the age of 47. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you continue on the on the path. You and I maybe last spent a lot of time together with Jack in Ghost Town. Talk about that. That was a play you put up here in Chicago, right? Yeah, I was uh, working with the Practical Theater at that time, right. uh, Paul Burroughs, and uh, uh, and also um, uh, I was uh, friends with John DeFusco, who was because uh, I was working on a big book on Vietnam veterans, which eventually got published, Home to War, and I was uh, friends with John DeFusco, who was a Vietnam veteran uh, who wrote the pl- wrote and directed the play Tracers, um, and so both both uh, DeFusco and Paul Burroughs were saying we need a play about Kerouac, and so I I said well you know. I've certainly I've got all these interviews I've got all this material I can certainly and I'm good I think I'm a good writer I can do it and I wrote Jack in, in Ghost Town and um, Paul Burroughs at the Practical Theater did the first um, staged reading of it um, at the Practical Theater and um uh, Del Close, uh, Del played Close. The part of Del Close played the part of the old Jack Kerouac. Um, there's a young Jack and an old Jack. You get they get two Jacks in the play, uh, and um, I thought the and you covered that as I recall yeah. for the Sun Times, and yeah. uh, I thought it went over very well. And it's had a number of staged readings basically all over the country, but it's never been never been fully produced. He, um, he, I think he played. I was going through my notes. He, uh, Dell had some Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker music in the background and stuff. I mean, oh, they did a very nice, yeah. a, you know, a staged reading, but they actually did a very nice job with sound effect, music effects, and and I mean, I thought it was it was very well done. Uh, someday, I, I'm about to turn seventy years old here. I hope if, while I'm still alive, I get to see that play actually produced somewhere. <laughs> Okay, and then uh, we're going to get into the book in a little bit. Why have you Why have you stuck with this so long? As him as a subject? Well, you know, uh, I, I wrote a long time ago. Somebody asked me way back, and I don't know, 18, 1981, uh, You know, uh, what are you What are you moving on to? And of course, I have moved on to a number of things. I wrote this big book on Vietnam veterans, yeah. and now I'm working on a big biography of Entezaki Shange, the pioneer black uh, woman writer for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. But anyway, I told this guy at the time, I said, well, Kerouac, you know, he just won't let go of me. For some yeah. reason, um, he's not done with me yet. And, you know, I became close friends with his daughter, uh, Jan. Yeah, we'll and, get to uh, that. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's part, a big part of the reason why he remained in my life. I'm yeah. not, well, I mean, obviously he remained in my life because as a writer, he's been an influence on me all my life. But, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Jan was a, a, a very, very troubled person. She didn't have, a, he wasn't a father to yeah. her. Her mother was not around. Uh, she grew up on the streets of New York, got into drugs early, and, okay. and was uh, and was uh, cut off from her from her father's estate, yeah. which she didn't know why, but it turned out to be a forged will. But anyway, her okay, well, we got we got Jerry, 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 we got to take a break, and then we'll get back okay. to her. <laughs> okay? All right, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Hey, Jack. Now for the tricky part. When you are the brightest star, who were the shadows? All the San Francisco B-Boys, you were the favorite. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. I'm Dave Hoekstra, and on the phone is author Gerald Nicosia, the author of Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. It's uh, out now. We'll get the information to you here in a minute. Um, you say here at the reasons for this book, Jerry, is um, I feel it's high time for people who say they love Jack Kerouac to start to think about what he really stood for. It was not commerce or capitalism or local boosterism, but ra- I like this, but rather the universal sacred heart. How do you feel about people uh, name-checking women in rock songs like 10,000 Maniacs just did there? 
Oh, well, that's great. I mean, the, you know, the fact that he influenced all these writers and artists, Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, I mean, this is this is beautiful. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm complaining about is, you know, Kerouac has been turned into a cash cow over the last 20-some years. And, uh, his manuscripts and his papers were sold off piecemeal to collectors and dealers for the highest prices. On the road, the man, that first pioneer roll manuscript, he typed the whole thing on a 120-foot-long roll of paper, speed typist, that was sold off to to Jim Ursay, the owner of the right. Indianapolis Colts, for $2.5 million. And uh, many other manuscripts were sold off. We don't even know where they are. And, of course, you know, they have leather Kerouac, leather jackets, Banana Republic was marketing, and Volvo was using Kerouac in an ad. That's what I'm complaining about, that kind of commercialization. But the fact that he's inspiring artists, well, that's a good thing, you know. You point out that he died with $91 in his bank account. That's an absolute true fact, yes. Talk about, we kind of kind of cut you off there for the breaks, but talk about Jane. You did a thing uh, with her called A Life in Memory in 2009, but you, you were very close to her. Don't understate it. You were taking care of her when she was sick, uh, Jan, and uh, you know, talk, talk about her. Well, Jan was a very close friend of mine and a very dear friend and a, a really amazing writer in her, in her own right. She wrote three novels, two of which were published in her lifetime, Baby Driver and Train Song. The third one, Parrot Fever, has been kept out of print, again, because of the, uh, the pressure from the Kerouac estate, because of the lawsuit that she brought this lawsuit against the Kerouac estate for forging her grandmother's will, which she only discovered uh, when she was dying of kidney failure a, a few years before her death. And the, the case finally went to trial years after she died, uh, Jack's uh, nephew, Paul Blake, finally carried it to trial. It was proven in court that the Sampas family had forged the will of, of Gabriel Kerouac, but because of a legal loophole, which was essentially a statute of limitations, that the, 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 the verdict had come too late, they still keep this estate, even though it's been proven. It's in the books. It was a final appeal, appellate decision. It was proven. The estate of Jack Kerouac was stolen by a forged will. Uh, but anyway, Jan was, Jan was fighting this while she was dying. She was dying of kidney failure. She was on dialysis every day. Uh, the last four years of her life, and uh, it was very hard. But she she didn't want it. People, you know, the the other side, the, the people that were trying to keep this stolen estate, oh, she's doing it for the money. Well, she wasn't doing it for the money. She knew she was going to die, but she wanted to preserve his papers. She wanted to get them all in one place in a library where people could study them and stop this selling off of things. And uh, and so I was uh, helping her and supporting her in that. But I, we had been friends way, way back from the time we were both in our 20s in, in the late 1970s. And she was, uh, in those days, a, a very beautiful woman and brilliant woman, and, but troubled because, you know, she didn't have a father. She was haunted by the father who was never there for her. The brother-in-law, John Sampas, that's who you're talking about, inherited the literary rights to his work. Now, he passed away in 2018, correct? Yes, that's correct. So where's, where are things right now? Well, the Sampas family, uh, they're still controlling the estate because of this, uh, it's called a Florida non-claim statute. It's essentially a statute of limitations. Even though it was proven that they got this, uh, Stella, Jack's widow, got this material by forging his will, uh, and then she died in 1990 before anybody knew that it was a forgery, and she left everything to her brothers and sisters, and, and Jan didn't discover this till four years later and didn't bring her lawsuit until four years later. And so under Florida law, because that lawsuit was filed too late, um, even though it was proven in court the will was a forgery, they still keep everything. And, and now the uh, state is being managed by uh, John Sampas's nephew, Jim, and his adopted son, John Shen Sampas. 
But there's a great deal of control being placed on Kerouac scholarship. That's one of the things I talk about in my book. You know, you, if you, they put some materials at the New York Public Library, but if you want to use them, you need the permission of the Sampas family. If you want to write anything about Kerouac, you've got to get their permission. Um, and if they don't like what you're writing about Kerouac, you're not going to be able to use those materials. This kind of control has been really dam damaging Kerouac scholarship, I think. Are they aware of this book? Uh, I haven't heard anything yet, but I would think so. It's had some. There's some initial reviews out on the on the web, so uh, I'm sure they're aware of it. Now, uh, there's, nothing, we're gonna... there's nothing I say in the book that's not absolutely documented and true. Those decisions are on file in the the probate court of Pinellas County, Florida. If anybody wants to look them up, well, it's a great book, and it's it's you know it's passionate because you're not a it's a, it's a great read because you're not a neutral you're not a neutral observer at all. You know what I mean? Um, now, I'm going to let you call the shots here, Jerry, since we're old friends. Do you want to read a poem, or do you want to talk about the Joan Anderson letter? Uh, that's one of my favorite chapters. I think that was the uh, eye-opener for some of the listeners. You want to talk? Maybe we can do let's both. Let's talk about the Joan Anderson yeah. letter. I, but let's mention that I am going to be yeah. reading my poetry at St. Louis University, if you want to tell that, or I can give the, the, the uh, November 2nd at uh, uh, the, uh, the Arts Hall there at St. Louis University, November 2nd, with a jazz, eight-piece jazz ensemble. I'm going to be reading my poems about Jack Kerouac and the Beats in St. St. Louis University. Yeah, we have St. Louis 2nd. listeners uh, uh, from a forthcoming book called Beat Scrapbook at the Krasenberg Arts Center at St. Louis University, accompanied by George Sams and his eight piece jazz ensemble. It's free, eight o'clock, free and open to the public. That's right. Good for you, Jerry. Are you going to come up from Chicago and promote any of this? Oh, there. Well, no, no, I'm not. I, I'm just coming into St. Louis and then coming back to the Bay Area where I live now. But since we have a little bit of time, let's just do the Cassidy letter because I'd, I'd be glad to talk about that. It is really important. And the Joan I, Anderson letter, uh, you mean? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Cassidy. Cassidy's Joan slash, Anderson letter. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Talk about that. Well. Uh, nobody knew where it was. People thought it was lost off, off of a houseboat in Sausalito. Uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, he had been struggling for years to write on the road, he, uh, to write about Neil Cassidy, this wild car thief, womanizer, fireball of energy. And, and Jack felt like this this man represented the dynamo of post-war America, you know, the car thief zooming all over America. But he couldn't figure out how to write about him. And, and he kept trying to do it in traditional fictional fashion, give him a fictional background and a fictional character. It wasn't working. And then Neil sent him this, uh, which we knew about it because Jack told people about it. He sent Neil sent him this 40,000-word, single-spaced, typed letter recounting all of his adventures in Denver, seducing women, stealing cars. And it was all, you know, in the first person, right as it happened. And when Jack read that huge, long letter, he said, this is how I have to write on the road. I, you know, I'm not going to. And it was really the foundation of new, what's called new journalism. You yeah. know, Tom Wolfe and, and uh, Hunter Thompson, where you're writing about real events, but you're doing it with character and dialogue. And Jack said, this is how I'm going to write on the road. I'm this was December, exactly what Neil did. December 1950. For, you, you're right, for giving him the key to writing on the road. I mean, this is an amazing discovery. Well, they, and they, so this, this letter, apparently, um, uh, Allen Ginsberg had sent a copy of it out to some small publisher. They were trying to get it. Uh, Neil and, and Neil, I'm sorry, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were trying to get Neil Cassidy published because they felt he was as great a writer as they were. And so uh, Allen Ginsberg was sending the letter out to little publishers. They sent a copy out to this little press in San Francisco. The guy didn't publish it, and he just put it in his, uh, whatever you want to call it, his garbage pile. <laughs> and then, then when his office closed down, somebody else scooped up all that garbage. 
garbage and kept it, uh, you know, stored away in a house somewhere. And it was only like three or four years ago that when the guy, the the guy, the guy who had taken the letter off from the other guy's garbage pile, he died, and his daughter said, sent somebody in. Can you go through this house and see what my dad left? If there's anything of value in there, and this guy is sort of a professional scavenger, Michael McQuaid. He goes in there and he's going through everything. He's a big Kerouac fan, and he's going through all this stuff, you know, old pieces of jewelry and this and that. And suddenly he comes upon this letter which describing all these adventures in Denver in 1945. And the guy's enough of a Kerouac fan to think, wait a minute, this is the Joe Henderson letter. This is the thing we've all thought was lost. And so it finally surfaced, and, and it was uh, sold to a university, I think, down in, in Texas or somewhere. But it hasn't been published yet. There's, uh, again, there's been some some uh, some issues, some legal issues, where the Kerouac estate was trying to, to uh, get the rights to publish it from the Cassidy estate. And, and there's still some ling- legal entanglements going on. So I've got to, I was privileged to read it because Jamie Cassidy, Neil's daughter, is a good friend of mine, and she gave me a copy of it. I was blown away because, Dave, not only are the connections to On the Road in that letter, there are connections to five or six other Kerouac books in that letter. In fact, the whole voice of it is very much Kerouac's voice, and I'm thinking that maybe Kerouac isn't, you know, he, maybe he's, he's a great writer, but in a different way than we thought. Maybe he didn't originate all this stuff. He was just smart enough that when he heard this in Neil Cassidy, he realized this is, new, this is a new way of writing, you know. Boy, that's that's fascinating, and it's it's not available to the public yet. It's locked up. No, no, it's in this library that bought it at an auction, and and again, you could look this up online. I forget the name of the school. It's down. It's down in the south somewhere. It's either Louisiana or Texas, but I mean, it, it can be viewed. It's a, uh, at least it's in a library. Unlike these Kerouac manuscripts that were sold to collectors and dealers and so on, this is actually in a library. Thank God. And the Cassidys plan to publish it at some point if they ever get past all the legal entanglements. It says here, record producer Jack Spinoza supposedly found it. And, I mean, so it was a record producer who was involved in this. Well, he was the guy that, that his office mate died, and instead of throwing all the papers in the garbage, he, I guess he thought his office mate was this small publisher, and I guess he thought, well, gee, this might be some interesting stuff. I think I should save it. And he did nothing with it. He just kept it in his house. And then when Jack Spinoza died, it was his daughter who hired yeah. the, the professional scavenger to come come to the house and you know see if he can find any jewelry or anything valuable. And the guy signs the Joan Anderson letter. Um, we got a couple minutes left. I want you to shout out the website and how people can find out about your book and also how they can find out more about you, Jerry. Uh, well, I have a website, uh, GeraldNicosia.com, G-E-R-A-L-D-N-I-C-O-S-I-A. Um, the book is uh, uh, it's a small press, and it's not on Amazon yet. It's Noodle Brain Press, but um, uh, they can uh, uh, they can write to P.O. Box 130, Corte Madera, California, 94976, and they can, uh, they can get information on the book or order the book that way. And I'm hoping soon to have it on Amazon. It's really just about to be released. It's uh, sort, of, sort of just off the press. So, but uh, hopefully in a month or two it'll be on Amazon. How busy are you this month with all this all this stuff going on? Really, really busy because you know Memory Babe has been out of print for eighteen years, and I'm trying to get it back into print. It's been a real struggle. Part of it is that, that because of my support for Jan Kerouac, yeah. I've had a lot of opposition from the Kerouac estate, and it's really made it very difficult. I, I did a, a whole new uh, version of Memory Babe. I did a revised and updated Memory Babe uh, based on all this new material, like the, the Cassidy letter, uh, and I'm trying now to find somebody that will publish uh, the new Memory Babe. And plus, I'm trying. 
trying to, uh, you know, get some publicity for Kerouac uh, the last quarter century, and I'm uh, going to be going to Los Angeles. There's a big art center there called Beyond Baroque. On the eve of the anniversary, October 20th, I'll be doing a legacy event. I'll be doing a legacy event in Lowell, Massachusetts, Kerouac's hometown, on October 12th at St. Anne's Church. So uh, a lot of stuff for Kerouac this month. Well, thank you. And people can see you uh, November 2nd in St. Louis, right? That's absolutely right. Well, thank you, Jerry. Thanks for taking your time out on a Saturday. You know, uh, I think it's in your book. When you write about someone, you also take on their karma. And I, I think that's yes. happened with you. Uh, for, for good and for bad, <laughs> but, you know, you can't, uh, you can't argue with your fate. And uh, plus, I could have had a worse person. You know, at least I'm not writing about Charlie Manson. I'm writing about somebody that did a lot of good and inspired a lot of people. So that's a good thing. You're the best, Jerry Nicosia, author of Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> And keep on wishing Remember your dream is your only skin So keep on pushing Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. That's Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up. And that's the title of Aaron Cohen's new book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And in the studio is Aaron Cohen. Thanks for joining us. Thank and you. we brought back Willie Henderson. You've been on the show. Yes. Chicago soul legend, oh, arranger, sax player. How you doing, Willie? Real good. Real okay. Good. So uh, we're going to get into the book. Fascinating book. Really detailed. You got a lot of stuff in here. <laughs> Um, so, Aaron, I, like I was telling you during the break, let's just talk about your pathway into soul music. What was your introduction into it and uh, growing up with it? Sure. Well, I grew up in Evanston, Illinois, and you know it was really wonderful to grow up there because there was so much music of different kinds around me. Um, you know, my parents listened to classical music and folk music. I had a neighbor who had a wonderful collection of jazz records friends who were into rock, R&B, and funk, and so I was able to follow uh, whatever that I perceived. And to me, soul music was so important, and I also, I don't want to give away our age differences, but reading Dave Hoekstra's articles in the newspaper helped inform me on soul music history and what a great, valuable tradition it is here in Chicago. Well, thank you for that. Um, and this is for all of us. Um, and having grown up here, and Willie, maybe we talked about this last time. How did you? How did soul come into the whole thing with uh, you know blues and jazz and stuff? You know, as far as you know, the way it was looked at and the way it was heard, and maybe not quite getting the notice that Chicago blues got. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was because uh, one of the books that I read as a teenager that was important was Peter Guralnick's book Sweet Soul Music, which focused on soul music in the '60s. And it's a very important part of the civil rights movement. And I felt that the same could be said for Chicago. I think the same could be said about the great soul music coming out of Chicago and its connections to the changes in society, changes in culture. And I also felt that it was important to look at how serious soul music is as music and the accomplishments of the people who played it, especially this person, Mr. Willie Henderson, who as a musical director, as a producer, as a saxophonist, um, people like him, I really wanted to you know, show what great musicians, what legendary musicians are they are. Willie, when you were doing this, I mean, did you look at the? Did you look at what was going on with blues and jazz? Or were you in your own world? Um, well, actually, I was just trying to be successful. Yeah, you know, get out there and uh, play the horn and uh, make some money if I could. Yeah. So I, I didn't have a deep respect 
or a deep knowledge of what I was doing. Yeah. Well, I want to get into some of the stuff you learned in, in high school uh, we'll that, that Aaron yes. brings up in the book. Yes, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but for, uh, 101, I mean, was there a difference between um, Chicago soul and Memphis soul and New Orleans soul? I mean, if, and if so, what was the difference? Well, that's the funny thing, um, you know, because I grew up in Chicago. I interviewed more than 100 musicians and other people for this book. So if I was to make the definitive statement saying Detroit soul was like this, Memphis soul was like that versus Chicago soul being like this, then I would have had to have been fair to Memphis and Detroit and interview 100 people in Detroit, 100 people in Memphis, 100 people in Philadelphia. So I can just talk more authoritatively about Chicago because I just became so immersed in it in the point of writing this book. And what really I felt was important to say is that Chicago soul music has not been as well documented as soul music in Detroit and Memphis. Uh, Robert Pruder's wonderful yeah. books uh, came out in the early 90s. Dave Hoekstra's wonderful articles uh, from the 80s and 90s. Oh, you're so nice. <laughs> but in terms of like, I have a whole shelf of books at home on really good books on Detroit soul. Um, I have a shelf of great books on Southern soul. There should be a great shelf of books on Chicago soul. So that's what I can say definitively is that Chicago soul is not as well documented in book form. Now, one thing I will also say about Chicago soul is that I have not found a definitive Chicago soul sound in the singular. It is so diverse. Um, Terry Collier, who we yeah. both knew. Yeah. Uh, sounded very different than the Shy Lights, who yeah. Willie Henderson worked with. And the Shy Lights sounded very different than Baby Huey and the Babysitters, who Curtis Mayfield worked with, yeah. who sounded very different than Curtis Mayfield, who sounded very different than Barbara Acklin, who Willie Henderson, who Willie Henderson also worked mm -hmm. with. And there was so much diversity. And um, another job I had over the years was I was an editor at Downbeat Magazine, and I always felt that the boundaries and definitions of jazz should be wide open, too, because Von Freeman, a Chicago jazz musician, sounded nothing like Anthony Braxton, a Chicago jazz musician. So the boundaries for jazz are so open that I felt the boundaries for souls should also be open, and Chicago embodied that in so many ways. Yeah, pick up on that, Willie, what he, what he just said. Well, no... <clears throat> There were so many different styles of music than you had here in Chicago and in Motown and in Memphis. They had a certain group of uh, musicians that worked together, and they established the sound. You know, you have uh, various arrangers that you can tell. They could uh, a guy in Memphis who, uh, like Willie Mitchell, he could go to Detroit with his guys and still have the Willie Mitchell sound. So that's that's what, it's all in the musicianship and uh, camaraderie and and uh, the arrangements of the music, and 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 has to do with uh, lyrics, you know, songwriters. Like people in Motown, like they had a certain style. You know, I I knew I could hear the, the come in and and doom, 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 doom. you knew it was Motown. You hear you know? Norman Whitfield, right? Yeah. And then yeah, no, yeah, Norman Whitfield or. Um, Holland Dozier Holland. Well, Holland Dozier Holland, but it was a kid, uh, Paul Reiser. Sure. Paul Reiser, he did uh, My Girl. Yeah. You know, they had a, a they, they grew up in the sound. Sonny Sanders, mm -hmm. who did a lot of arrangements. Before he here. came to Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he grew up in that situation. And that's why uh, Carl Davis would bring them in for our, for our, our sessions. 
One thing I always heard uh, is that um, at that point when you guys were doing this, there was a lot of jingle work. It was a big commercial center, and people would play sessions, commercial sessions during the day and stuff. And uh, is that true? Was there a lot of, a lot of musicians doing that commercial work here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So their chops were up. Mm-hmm. And just down the street, we're just down yeah, the street right. from some of the big advertising agencies that were here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they were working, working. A lot of people work. working. Yeah. Um, so when did you begin this, Aaron? Well, the first, the earliest interview in the book was the interview I did with Terry Collier, and that was in January of 1997, and that was for a Downbeat article. And you know, I did a bunch of other things between then and now. I went to graduate school. I edited Downbeat for a few years. I wrote a book on Aretha Franklin's Amazing yeah. Grace album. So I did a bunch of things. But I came back to working on this book in 2010. And in 2011, it started picking up steam. In 2013 was when I signed the contract with the University of Chicago Press. But by that time, I'd been working on it for a couple of years. And now it's out. So um, in some ways, 21 years in other ways about seven years books books are hard they are yes, people they everybody are. says write a book write a book they're, no, they're really hard, hard, hard yeah. <laughs> we'll be back we got to take a break i want to get into more of the method of this after Absolutely. this on nocturnal journal on wgn That's what we're talking about, Aaron Cohen, McKinley Mitchell, huh? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That wonderful records. It's like, oh, yeah. Wonderful. Um, boy, it's great nocturnal stuff. You can play absolutely, that stuff on that. Absolutely. Very great nighttime record, that is. So talk about the imprint and the influence of your dad, Sheldon Cohen, on this project. Well, my dad uh, was a longtime history professor at Loyola University of Chicago. He taught colonial American history. And something that he has always done throughout his work as a professor with the books he wrote, um, he always felt that the stories of the major people, the George Washingtons, the Thomas Jeffersons, have been told to death. And so he wanted to tell stories that were very important in terms of that period, but were not as well known and should be, whether it was education at that time and place or Americans who were held prisoner as POWs in the American Revolution. So that approach to history, that approach to American history, and also the importance of how politics, culture interact uh, was as true in that place in that time as I felt it was in Chicago in the 60s and 70s. And so a huge impact on what I do to this day. Did you go with him, like if you stumbled on something or had a block or questions, did he did he help you out or were you just off, kind of off on your own on it? It was a bit, you know, I mean, well, my mother, uh, Kayla Cohn, who was an editor for a number of years, uh, edited textbooks. So I relied on both, you know, my dad and mom for their insights. I relied on my wife, LaVon Cohen, for a lot of research help. She's a really wonderful librarian, a wonderful researcher. So I depended on everybody in my family circle. Uh, my wife, LaVon, who I love. Hi, LaVon. Uh, my mom and my dad. I love you, too. You know, it's like when I talk to journalism students, I always tell the story about Jimmy Breslin. And when yes. he covered, when he covered uh, Kennedy's, uh, the funeral and stuff, everybody was gathered around the casket, and Breslin went and interviewed the gravedigger. Nobody was around the gravedigger. Right, you know, right. and it's always, like you just said, looking, looking a little bit 
off what everybody's talking about. All that being said, you know, there are a lot of famous names in my book, whether it's Curtis Mayfield or Shaka Khan or Gene Chandler. I mean, they're so great. There's no way around them, you know. Yeah. I want to go through some of the, uh, tell, uh, yes. before we do this, tell how people can find the book. Well, Move On Up is available everywhere. It's available in retail. It's available online. And I'm going to be doing some book release events uh, this week, uh, Thursday, uh, October 10th at 6 o'clock. I will be at the Seminary Co-op, which is in Hyde Park. And it's on Woodlawn and 57th. So that's on Thursday at 6. I'll be with uh, DJ Dwayne Powell. And we will be having a conversation, and then uh, Dwayne Powell will be playing music, and I'll be signing books. It's a wonderful store. And then on Friday at 8.30, I will be at Constellation, a really wonderful jazz club uh, run by a great musician, Mike Reed. And so Constellation's on Western. And My new friend's going to be there from the friend? Old Town Ale House. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Steve Marquette. Yeah, right. Steve Marquette. We're DJing together. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, jazz guitarist Steve Marquette and I are going to be DJing at Constellation on Friday, this Friday, October 11th at 830. And there'll be books available there as well. And that's on Western, uh, 3111 Northwestern, Western in Belmont. And then on Thursday, October 24th, I will be at Bookseller in Lincoln Square. It's on Lincoln, just south of uh, Lawrence. And that's Thursday, October 24th at 7 p.m. But the books are available in bookstores anytime. But I would love for you to come out because I'd love to meet everybody. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go through some of the points in your book. There's so many we can't cover them all in the next up to 11 o'clock. I really will. I'm looking forward to speaking with Mr. Henderson. Yeah. Well, that's why um, I want to talk for both you guys about and the business acumen and stuff about the guys taking ownership and stuff. And you know, you talk about VJ being African American owned, and you talk a lot about Jerry Butler and the Songwriters Workshop and and some of the stuff Carl did. Can you talk about having? And it goes back to even what Sam Cooke was doing. But can you, Willie? Can you begin with talking about having ownership of your songs and property and well you know that's very important to have ownership yeah <clears throat> because in the past everyone would take advantage of you because you didn't know the business if you were just basically a musician you didn't know the ins and outs of business and you know all you knew was music and a lot of these uh, uh, people were just unscrupulous they would just take advantage of you so that that's when you find out the real importance of owning what you do. Yeah. Own as much of yourself as you can, was what yeah. Curtis Mayfield said. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and also, too, musicians were organizing themselves in studios, even when they didn't own the label. But like at Chess Records, musicians like Billy Davis and Jackie Ross and Mitty Collier started to speak up for themselves. Yeah. And what's really interesting, is, Willie, when I interviewed you and you spoke about how um, – you know, you're working for Carl Davis, yeah, and then you decided to go on your own with Willie Henderson Productions. Right, you're still in the same building. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's no hard feelings. Yeah, let you stay so in the I same asked building. Carl, I said, "Hey, man, the, can I go downstairs? Can I do rent something from you?" He said, "Yeah, go ahead." <laughs> you know, yeah. So we, we was, but he understood what was going on. Sure, you know? he was sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. So, and and Carl was a great guy. You know, although I did most of the work. Mm-hmm. But he gave me the opportunity to go to Universal to, de- to do all of these projects. You know, well, ordinarily I wouldn't have been able to do. So, I mean, Tyrone, t- talk about some of your your best known well, songs with uh, with Carl well, Davis. One thing we're talking about going to the studio. It was the engineer named Rich Adler. Uh, we were doing. Um, I had it all the time, 
and you had the airplane coming, the airplane sounds. So Rich had went out to O'Hare Field with his microphone <laughs> and recorded that sound, you know, and it, it turned out to be a great record, you know. What was the Chicago uh, Music Organization? You did that in 99? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm thinking about revising it, you know. Uh, in fact, a lady called me, uh, asked, uh, uh, she was uh, a violinist, and she wanted to know something about the violin. And I said, well, I can give you some violin players, you know. But we went to the telephone book, and they asked me what was the name of my new organization. I said, well, a music, uh, a music organization. So that's how that happened. It's important you're capturing this history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad that Mr. Henderson is here with us, because it's so important that veterans like him, who have seen so much, experienced so much, and created so much, be given a wider platform to tell their stories and should be celebrated by this whole city. You say you want this book to jumpstart conversation. I do. Elaborate on that, and what do you mean? Well, I... I don't want this book to be the last book on Chicago Soul. I want other people to have their perspectives. I want other people to tell their stories. Uh, I want people to have, you know, their own, do their own look into this past and come up with other perspectives because no individual can tell this entire great story. So I definitely, I'm a teacher. I teach at City Colleges of Chicago. And one of the things I try to do is encourage discussion, encourage students to think on their own and to come up with their own answers. And so that's what I would really like to do with this book. I don't want to be someone who says, I told that story. No one else can. I own it. I'm not that kind of writer. Talk about the arc. You kind of stopped at 1990 and then kind of picked up again. Talk about how you decided to... to well, I stopped it around in the early 80s. Yeah. Um, I, I stopped um, because I thought it would be an important 25-year period, 1958 to 1983. Uh-huh. And... In 1958, I started with the Impressions, uh, their first record contract. And I basically end the book with Harold Washington's election, which a lot of musicians took part in. And so I felt that Harold Washington's election was the culmination of music and politics and uh, racial issues in Chicago. Also at that time, um, the record industry in Chicago was not what it was. So that, and I talk about why it was ending. Uh, there's this whole other kind of music, house music, coming up through the ranks, and that's mm-hmm. a whole other story in and of itself. I kind of talk about a little bit, a little bit about the origins of house. So, um, but then I also thought, you know, Steve Dahl invented house music. Uh, we're not going to get into that. Into that. I, in the book, I talk yeah, about I know. That, whole, that whole story. No reason to repeat it yeah, here because yeah. I want to keep my language. Yeah. And um, so, um, but then I also want to talk about the present day and. Um, how people view this music today, the reissues and what they mean. Yeah, in the next um, segment, I want to get into sampling. Something. Sampling, yeah. what that is. We'll talk about that in a bit. And also, one of the nicest things about this whole project was right when it was ending, um, there was this emergence of really young, talented people who are not just R&B musicians, but they bring in R&B and jazz and spoken word. They put it all together. And, um, you know, and they're now in their early 20s and uh, some are in their late teens and so I wanted to have an afterword that included them as well and their voices today because I think there is a link there are there are connections and there are similarities and dissimilarities too where are they hearing this the young people you know I mean 
Uh, not, not, not on radio. Well, well that's an yeah. interesting yeah. thing. You know, one of the people I mentioned in the book, uh, Jamila Woods, right. who's uh, pretty well known now. She did the Herb Kent thing. Her Ode to Herb yeah, Kent. Right. Yeah, so she grew up listening to Herb Kent, you know, Dusty's show. And yeah. uh, Jamila Woods' uh, sister, Ayana Woods, who's younger, is an amazing talent. Um, so, you know, the music's out there. And the music is played on, whether it's the internet or whatever, and you have very talented young people who seek it out and i think that's such a wonderful thing maybe they trade it i mean you know maybe they, they listen to this you know samples yeah right yeah yeah we're gonna get in a, a sample well uh, you touched on herb Kent. we've got a little bit of time before the news i'm um, talk about and well, maybe we'll have to carry this over because it's a big subject and you devote a lot of time to it wvon and chicago radio and stuff but oh, von goes on april 1st 1963 huge yeah I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how much i can say about yeah. wvon in the short segment but i mean not only only were they, you know, playing R&B in a major market, Chicago, and not just Chicago artists, but also from around the country. But they were a forum for young people to talk about what they were going through in Chicago at that time. And they're going through a lot. And it's interesting, too, how a lot of these themes recur. For instance, we had the students who were striking against inequality in the schools at that time. And that issue hasn't gone away. And WVON not only played the music, but gave them an opportunity to speak about it. And it also provided them places, venues for the young people to gather and show off even their fashion and dance moves. And was a form of identity, a form of declaration as well that VON. And I'm, I know we're sort of rushing, mm -hmm. condensing the whole VON story into a second, but it was crucial. Well, we'll come back with VON because okay. I want you to talk about what it was okay. like with the good guys and all that. So this is fascinating stuff. So thank you for, for joining us. I'm glad you guys found a place to park. Yeah, thank you. you. <laughs> Willie Henderson and Aaron Cohen, and we're thank talking so about much. the great book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And we'll be back after this on Noc Nocturnal Journal. That's what she said. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and in the studio we have Aaron Cohen, the author of Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, and Willie Henderson, legendary Chicago musician, producer, arranger. Thanks, Willie. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Willie. It's so great to see you. Your treasure. Seen and not viewed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get back to VON in a minute, but we played a little Jerry Butler. He was a pathfinder for you in this. Oh, I mean, yeah, talk about absolutely. Jerry. And I was so fortunate to be able to speak with him. Um, you know, he, he did so much as a singer. I mean, very unique singing voice, as you just heard from the segment you played. Yeah. Uh, as a musical organizer, organizing the Songwriters mm -hmm. Workshop, where people like Terry Collier and Larry Wade and Chuck Jackson came out of. Um, and then also when, um, and then he also was a beer distributor for a yeah. while too, so a sharp businessman as well. And he also, when he got into politics, it wasn't just about making speeches or rabble rousing, but it was about direct action, running for Cook County Commissioner and actually having a political role in the day-to-day -day lives of people in the city. And so he fulfilled all of these roles and he was the nexus of so much of this whole cross-section of music, politics, and culture. He was involved in all of it and also at a very local level as well. Uh, Willie, and for both of you, but... Why did people like Jerry and yourself, why, why did you guys stay in Chicago and not move to L.A. or New York? Or 
Well, we knew our way around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, when you have connections, you, know, you like the, the musicians, you like the, the people around you, so you stay here. Yeah. Yeah. Same question. Why did some of these artists stay here? Well, what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, know your way around. And also, I mean, there was what would have New York have offered in the 60s and 70s or L.A. have offered for for these guys that Chicago didn't at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And V.O.N. I mean, V.O.N. played the music. Uh, We we had to stop at V.O.N. for the news. But Willie, talk about uh, how they got behind the songs. Talk about what they did in the community. You know, I remember talking to Herb and those guys about, you know, trying to get peace on the streets and stuff. I mean, mean, the the, the contribution they made towards sense of community and vibe cannot be understated. Well, Herb Kent was a, a unique character. You had a family uh, atmosphere. Like, he reached out to youngsters. He had the electric crazy people. And oh, yes. The Wahoo Man and all of that stuff. And uh, uh, phrases like 10-9 and all of that kind of stuff. Herb was just a likable guy. but And people gravitated to him. Now, E. Rodney Jones, now, man, yeah, I don't know what I can say about E. Rodney. He, he was such a... Well, he had a big heart, but he was a good worker, and he knew if he liked your record, he would bust it. It, it would it would sell. Uh, e. Rodney uh, Purvis Band was the blues man, you know. In fact, I I did a record on uh, on uh, I'll make make it all right with a gospel record. So he came on like at twelve or one o'clock in the morning. He was over on Kedzie. So I came, went over there, had to go to the back door, beat on the door, and uh, uh, Mr. Spann would come, and, and he played my record over and over and over again, and it turned out to be a great record. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, and Don Cornelius. Don Cornelius. Don oh, you- Cornelius came out, out of uh, uh, WVON. He was doing jingles. Uh, voiceovers. Yeah. And he was also reporting on Dr. King's time in Chicago that Don Cornelius was there reporting on King's activities on the West Side. I mean, mm-hmm. Don Cornelius was the news guy on VOA. That's part of your book. And yeah. there's a great photo of Don Cornelius with his microphone, you know, trailing Dr. King as they're walking down the street. VON, though, I mean, they break records. I mean, oh, oh yeah, they broke records. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Talk about, you mentioned the church. Um, talk about the influence, both of you, of, of the church on, on Chicago soul music. And I pulled some notes. Even when I talked to Curtis in 1990 or 89 or 93, he said he found himself in the church. He just heard all the voicings in the church and stuff. Just talk about the, the connections between church Curtis? and soul. Curtis Mayfield. Well, I think Curtis's uh, mother was a, a pastor. Right. What they called it? Grandmother uh, Reverend A.B. Mayfield. Uh, yeah. 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 Traveling Souls. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah and, uh, well, Curtis, I used to live on the 215 East 18th Street, and Curtis and my sister was in the, the same grammar school in the fifth grade. And uh, he came up, one story, he came up to uh, our, our, our place, our apartment on 18th Street, and he had a guitar with him, you know, and uh, we had we had to be about I don't know about twelve or something like that, and he would be playing you know. And, and I said, well, he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, look, man, I'm tracing I'm tracing comics here, you know. Go in the front room, you know. He was playing his, his guitar, and then it dawned on me like, hey, he probably came up to see my sister, and not me, <laughs> you know. 
So yeah, Curtis, Curtis, and and we, I did a session for Curtis years ago. I mean, years later, and he was doing a, a film, uh, Short Eyes, I think was the name of the film, and uh, it was it, our tune was never released, but it was always a pleasure working with Curtis. And I think it was Roy, uh, Roy Cooter said his guitar is like a jacuzzi. Sounds like a jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. Like you're in a jacuzzi. Yeah, so, so, dig that gypsy woman. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how he, he ever thought of that. You know, and, and, and with the, the tonality of, of the whole thing, it was great. Yeah. Talk about church and, and so Well, one of the interesting things, too, about Chicago, and as I mentioned, the diversity, and a lot of that diversity in the music came because of, there were so many diverse churches right. in Chicago. I mean, the Shylights, Marshall Thompson came out of the Catholic Church. Uh, Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler, who we were just talking about, came out of a Pentecostal tradition. Um, Patty Drew up in Evanston was, you know, a Methodist, a Presbyterian tradition. Uh, Minnie Ripperton didn't really have much of a church background, so they all had different approaches to music. And the fact that they came up through different churches, which had different styles of music, and then there were the flamingos, who sort of a Jewish spiritualist kind of church too, and their music reflected that in some ways. So the fact that there was such diversity, and that's one of the reasons why the music was so strong in Chicago, is because out of diversity comes strength. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the great fun facts of your book that I learned. You ready, Willie? What? I didn't know this. The Chuck Barksdale Nation of Islam was selling copies of Muhammad Speaks with Muhammad Ali. Yeah, they were standing. Chuck Barksdale I never knew that story. Me, yeah, he would stand, sell, um, yeah, with his buddy Muhammad Ali. And, um, you know, Chuck Barksdale was a Muslim. I yeah. was at his funeral. A wonderful man. Just passed wonderful, away. Yeah. Just passed away. Wonderful yeah. man. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a Nation of Islam funeral. And um, so he was very active in the nation. That's that's really amazing stuff. Um so we go from the church to the clubs. You talk about the clubs in the book. Uh, talk about you know Perv's place, uh, the Copper Box, holding political rallies at the Copper. Yeah, political meetings. Yeah, and right. Such. Yeah, uh-huh. and also uh, the High Chaparral uh, was important. Clarence Ludd, and um, again another meeting place, another venue, another as uh, public theater where people are gathered. And it was a place to organize uh, when organizing business, small businesses starting up in the clubs. Again, using the High Chaparral is very important one and then there was those venues that were not clubs but community theaters i mean the regal a big one of course Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. phil karan the afro arts theater where it's a showcase on the south side for african culture and it impresses the young people in the neighborhood who are the young people yvette stevens soon to become shaka khan Mm -hmm. maurice white who was drumming at chess he becomes the earth wind and fire founder brings in the musical lessons he learns at the Afro Arts Theater to Earth, Wind, and Fire. The Pharaohs come out of the Afro Arts Theater, and some of them join up with Earth, Wind, and Fire. So it was the clubs, it was the theaters, it was the cultural centers that doubled as theaters, and just these different and very diverse venues in Chicago. Willie, what was it like to be making this music uh, during as the civil rights movement was becoming embryonic and going into full force? Are, are we talking about the early 60s? Yeah, and, yeah. and the mid-60s, yeah. <clears throat> well, I don't know. It really, I was in the Army. Mm-hmm. I got drafted in 65 to 67. And that was like in the heart. Muhammad Ali, uh, he, he refused to be drafted. <clears throat> I mean, the, the going to the service. So I missed a lot of, of, of the, the action that was here in the street. 
you know. But uh, that's now it didn't affect me that much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You heard that in some of the songs, though, that that were maybe out when you were away. Oh, yeah. 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 And other people had different reactions. Everybody had a different response to what was going on here, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Give us some good examples of songs that, that empowered people. Move on up. The yeah. title track uh-huh. of my book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we're a winner. Uh, another impression song. Um, because, in fact, it's interesting. The title, too, We're a Winner. Well, to be grammatically correct, it should have been We Are Winners. However, We're a Winner makes the collective whole as one. We're a winner singly. We're moving together. That's what's so beautiful and poetic about that title. Um, you know, Sil Johnson's Is It Because I'm Black, which mm-hmm. he wrote in response to uh, King's assassination. Uh, the Pharaohs, Freedom Road, mm-hmm. self explanatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're about to hear uh, Willie Henderson's Off to a Black Thing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, very much that a cultural bit. statement. Sampling. We, we want to touch on that. You mentioned Sil Johnson. You know, every time oh, yes. you talk to Sil, you hear about sampling and stuff. Talk about what that's done for you guys. Yeah. Sil made a lot of money. He sampling. did. Yeah. A lot of the young, the rappers, well, hip hopsters, is that what hip hopsters, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they loved uh, Minnie Ripperton and um, the drummer uh, Morris Jennings. Morris Jennings, they would sample the, the about four bars of that, sure, and it was uh, Minnie's voice. Was that? <laughs> oh yeah, and different strokes, oh, different, different, stroke. different strokes, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I, I played on that. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. And we got to take a break, and we're going to come back to the samples after this on uh, WG. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. And in the studio, Aaron Cohen, the author of the book, the fine book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. And it's on University of Chicago Press. Yes. Mr. Willie Henderson, thanks for joining us. That was your track there. Off into a black thing that we were playing oh, really? that. Yeah. yeah. Willie Henderson and yeah, the Soul Sims ex- took a great solo on that. Pardon me? Gerald Sims took a great Gerald solo, Sims. Uh, guitar solo. Yeah, talk about Gerald Sims, actually, who he yeah, was. Well, you know, I took Gerald's place uh, at Brunswick. He was the music director before I got there. And so and he, he and Carl decided to, to move in separate uh, directions, and uh, so I moved in. <laughs> great song. Yeah. Great song. But even though he was no longer the director, he would still do sessions like that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ger- well, you know, we all, we was a family, mm-hmm. you know. Even if if we had um, if we, if we fell out with one another, you know, have arguments or something, but still, when the deal went down, we were still together. What are we were talking about sampling? What are what are some of the more popular tracks that have been sampled and stuff that you've been involved in? Well, uh, my my main one was uh, the Beastie Boys. They sampled one of my tunes called Professor Booty, and uh, I still get royalties from it. So I really can't get too bad. But the leader of the Beastie Boys uh, saw me. We were at um, some function with, uh, I was playing with uh, Otis Rush. And he said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you didn't give me any hassle about uh, that, that song, you know. I said, well, it's okay, you know. Then I thought about it. I said, maybe I should have given them a hassle, <laughs> you know, because they made a lot of money. The Beastie Boys is a big group. Because that was the thing, is that you know a lot of the artists who I spoke to who made money from sampling, uh, Sil Johnson, yeah. uh, Johnny Pate, 
because uh, when he did the uh, compositions for Shaft and Africa, and those were sampled later, um, you know, they went after people. I mean, they really, and I, I talked to other people in the book whose music was sampled, and they didn't go after people for whatever reason, and they didn't get, because the people who sample aren't going to take it upon themselves to pay people. Yeah. It's the people like Mr. Henderson here who have been sampled who need to, like, you know, right. go after people. I've told you before I'd like to get Syl on the show, but I'm I'm scared. <laughs> Just be holding the button the whole time. Yeah, we probably should uh, leave it at that. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Leave it at that. A couple things, Aaron. Um, I've been asked this, and I I did a book on soul food and civil rights. I'm going to yeah, get to that book. in a little bit of time. But what how do you how do you define soul? How would you define soul? How would I define soul? I mean, that's going to take me like a long time to give you a big full answer um you know it's it's a feeling it's a feeling it's a feeling, it's a feeling. That's, that's he just he just said it better yeah. than i could it's a feeling and it's something where it's there's an authentic a feeling of authenticity a feeling of realness a feeling of heart a feeling of and it's natural it's natural a yeah. feeling of mind and it's something that comes from a real community as well as from an individual yeah, it's a feeling of love. Feeling yeah. of love. I got to tell you, I was... Um, now, again, it would take forever to define what all those mean, but that's the encapsulation. I was uh, at the first Obama inauguration for the Sun-Times, and we went... This ended up in my book, um, but we went to a place called Marvin in D.C., and it was a Marvin Gaye-themed restaurant. And they had the blessings of Marvin Gaye's family and stuff. And I'll never forget that we were in there having dinner and stuff, and Curtis's choice... Uh, the Impressions Choice of Colors came on during that, that dinner. Yeah, and uh, during the weekend of Obama's and that, and that's that's soul. He was I, amazing. Yeah, yeah, Curtis. It was just oh, yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan, Curtis Mayfield, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Then the other thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, you know, we I try to be as honest as possible. When I did the reader did this, when I did the Soul Food and Civil Rights book, the, they they gave a nice uh, review of the book and stuff. But the headline was, uh, "Can a white writer write about soul food?" You know, and the, so did you get that? I mean, a white writer taking this on, and I have an answer to that. But you know, what what was well, it like I for think, you to, to to venture into this? I mean, this goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, and that's everybody has their perspectives, mm -hmm. and I want more people to tell their stories. I want more people to come out and say, to, you know, tell the story of this history. So um, I just encourage everybody to do it, and I I want people to know how. The story should be told by everybody. Well, what you have done is you tell these stories. You're a vessel, and you tell them with so much respect and integrity and detail. And there's, it's. If you've seen, you've read the book, right, Will? No, I'll give no you yeah. a copy. I have a copy yeah. to give you, actually. But um, brought a copy for you. Just Im you. immaculately researched. You know, you spent a lot of time in libraries. Well, and, and I'm so grateful for people like Mr. Henderson who spent the time talking to me. Yeah, um, I you know owe people like this the world. I asked this, of a, maybe I even asked this with Jerry Nicosia, who was on before you, but um, when you do a book and you, you're, you're so much a part of it for so long, what was uh, the, what did you discover that you didn't know before? You're very well schooled in this. but you know, what, everybody I spoke to had their own story. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't know Mr. Henderson so much about Mr. Henderson's life until he told me. Like, I didn't know about your Afro-futuristic magic, magic space fantasy until you told me. Uh, the music magic space music fantasy. Music magic space fantasy. Well, what's that, Willie? Well, I, when I was um, working over at uh, Malcolm X College, I, uh, they asked me to, to write a play. And so I wrote a musical. 
you know, and they performed it for two two years o- over there. You know, it was a great experience. And <clears throat> this is when uh, when they uh, what's this boy uh, Clinton George Clinton came out with with his uh, uh, mothership connection yeah, and all of that stuff. So, and I wrote a thing that was based generally around that, but I created my own characters and the whole thing. Yeah. Well, what what's the status of that? Hmm? What's the status of that? Can we bring it back? Yeah, yeah. You should. <laughs> I, I got the scores and everything. You know, your daughter. <laughs> I just haven't had time to really get into it and, and uh, do it the way I want to do it. But if I can get it exposed, yeah, sure. And that's what I'm saying because Afrofuturism is such a big thing now right. uh-huh. that this is now the time to restage. You know, this wonderful musical. Yeah, and, and all the the, the, the youngsters the, for the summer program that that were in in music. They played. They they played the charts. Now I wrote all the charts and everything. They played the charts and it was good, very good. Boy, that's that's interesting. Oh, Mr. Mac. Yeah. Oh, yes, Mac, of course. You knew. I, I, yeah, we'll we'll wrap it up where, where it kind of began for you. Talk about and it's a lot. A big part of Aaron's book, James Mack, Crane Junior College. I mean, it's in the book. I mean, the Jasmine with Maurice White. And talk, Tom, oh, Tom, yeah. Tom Washington. Yeah. So uh, well, the 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 the, uh, the cruise. Uh, no. The, the interpreters, the interpreters, interpreters, yes, Tom, Tom, <clears throat> and George Patterson. There, they were. Uh, well, actually, uh, George Patterson, who did um, uh, "It's Your Thing" mm-hmm. by the Isley Brothers, he, yeah. he arranged mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, Maurice White and Donald Myrick and uh, Louis Satterfield. They were all. They were with uh, the Pharaohs. Then they became uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. But there was two separate entities. Right. But James Mack, he was just like the guy that put everything together. When we came, we would come to to class. If we didn't have lunch money, he would give us lunch money. If we missed our, if we missed our homework, he would give you a punch. <laughs> you know? But he he was just a great guy, you know. And you you point out in the book, um, I think European classical music. He I wanted mean, to was... teach European classical music. That was his thing. But he realized that the students want jazz. And he was also a union organizer. He fought to integrate the musicians' unions. And then later on, he was doing arranging for people like Tyrone Davis and people like that. So he did all of these different things as an educator, as an organizer, as a composer, as an arranger. I mean, just such an important... We were called the Mac Men. The Mac Men. The Mac Men. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) important to Chicago. What about the... Now, the Metrotones, were you in that? Yeah, I created that. Okay, what, what was that about? Well, the Metrotones is that I had the only group that made money. You know, we played blues. I, I worked with Alvin Cash. I oh, yeah. With, with all, all the guys that were around, I was worked with a Wonderful Records. In fact, I got a much, bunch of the guys who got their first recording thing was through through me. And uh, we, uh, we just, uh, it was a great experience. In fact, the guy said, well, let's, let's work with Willie where we can have some money, you know. So it, it, it was kind of cool. Can you, is it accurate to say that this experience at Crane and with Mr. Mack kind of set you on your path? Is this what you wanted oh, to do? Oh, yeah, well, look, I was at Wendell Phillips, and uh, I, I was in the concert band, and uh, we were doing a, a graduation, and, and the, the instructor came over at the end of the night and said, look, man, I want you to go to, to Hyde Park High School and play baritone saxophone. Oh, and then next semester you're going to be in the in the jazz band. And from there, Mr. Whitworth sent me over to James Mack, you know, 
who and, and I met Alvin Cash and, and Otis Rush and all of those guys. So we, and, uh, we did the Betty Everything and then went to Chess Records and became the, the, the house band over there. So it was just a, a great experience. This is great. Um, I just thought of this. This was on my little notebook. Didn't you create a Spotify list? Or how can how can people find this music? I mean, you can go to Dusty Groove. I don't know go if to, some of your yeah, stuff. Go is, to Dusty Groove. We love Dusty store. Groove here. Go to Dusty Groove and... You know, uh, I don't know if we can advertise, but go to Dusty Groove. Sure, yeah, they've sponsored that. the show in the past. All right, then yeah, go right. to Dusty Groove, and you can pick up the book there and many great records. Um, you know, I have a Spotify playlist under the very exciting name Chicago Soul Book. And it is what, and so I, you know, I put a lot of songs that were on there, but definitely you want to hear these as on record. And um, so go to Dusty Groove. Um, but yeah, let me just also say so. Uh, going back, uh, Thursday, October 10th is, you'll hear, no, you'll hear the music too. Yeah. Because on Thursday, October 10th, uh, DJ Dwayne Powell will be playing the music and I'll be speaking at Seminary Co-op Bookstore on Thursday, October 10th at 6 p.m. And that's on Woodlawn and 57th. And then Friday at Constellation on 3111 Northwestern, that's Western in Belmont. I'll be DJing with jazz guitarist uh, Steve Marquette, and books will be available as well as your opportunity to hear these great songs. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The door's open for both of you, always. Willie, you got to come back next month. Hey. We'll talk about more stuff. When you launch that play, you come back, all right? Well, just give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Okay, yeah. thanks, you guys. It's Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. Uh, Aaron Cohen, the author in the book, and Willie Henderson is in the book. So thanks for listening tonight on Nocturnal Journal.